All right, I'm going to start off. I need a couple of volunteers, and I need some folks who are good sports. So I see a couple. Ronnie, do me a favor, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to volunteer you without volunteer. Yeah. No, Ronnie, I'm sorry. But do you want to volunteer, Brian? No, no. Okay. Ronnie, come down and maybe sit by. You guys are going to be my volunteers this morning, because you're all lined up. Brian, Mark, and Ronnie. Ronnie, yep, the three of you. I'm going to blindfold you guys. That's good. Yep. Oh, take your glasses off and you can't see? All right. It's nothing weird, too, so don't get like, you know, you kind of get a little weirded out, but don't worry. It's nothing weird. Don't want to mess it. You got a nice hair going on today, right? Okay. Is that good? Can you see anything? No. Okay. Yeah, that's why I should have chose the follically challenged brothers. All right, you ready? We can't just do the honor system? The honor system, just keep your eyes closed? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if I trust you. I mean, Mark, for sure, I would do honor system with you, not so much. <laughs> I see your slippery deals on Craigslist, so that's why I, I don't. <laughs> trying to hustle. Okay, one more. So, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, I have something that I, I want to bring into you guys, and I just want you to describe it. Okay, so I'm going to let you kind of kind of touch it feel it with your hands, and then you're just going to describe it out loud what you're feeling. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'll bring it into you, and you're gonna, I'm just going to go one at a time. <clears throat> okay, Mark, are you ready? Okay, just kind of stick your hands out. I'm going to put something in your hand, and just kind of describe what you're feeling. What does it feel like? Just like a, a tire. Tell me about what you're, like, what do, what do you feel, though? What is it? Well, I'm feeling spokes here uh-huh. that are supporting the rim mm-hmm. that are holding on a tire. Okay. Feel that? Okay, let me get something different for Brian. Are you sure it's different, or are you tricking me? <clears throat> well, are you tricking me? Okay, here's what I want you to. Okay, ready? Yeah. I don't know. It's just it's a piece of metal covered with rubber, and it feels really heavy, like it's a lock or something. Okay. Actually, it could be a bicycle. You could be holding the end of the bicycle. It feels like there's something behind it. There's some weight. Okay, so you rubbery. Yeah. Hard, like a lock. Yeah. Right, Mark. You were feeling. You were feeling rubbery. You were feeling spokes. You were feeling. What else, Mark? Okay, Ronnie, your turn. It's cold. Yeah, it feels like metal. Uh, pretty thin, like round. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a Ronnie's, by the way, he's crushing you guys in the description <laughs> department right now. Okay. Okay, you guys can take your, your uh, blindfolds off. <clears throat> right? You guys all just touched different parts of a bicycle. That's all it was, right? So, Mark, you were right. You touched the, um, the tire, right? Brian, I think you were right. I think, did you say a handlebar? Yeah. So, I had you touch the grips and, and kind of this right here, and you were, you were knocking here. And then, Ronnie, you just touched the, 
um, the kickstand, right? So you guys all touched different parts of the bicycle. Now when you think about this in this kind of description, has anybody ever seen, as we talk about pluralism, has anybody ever heard of the three blind men and the elephant? Brian, you've heard of that? Anybody else? You've heard of it? Um, the three blind men and the elephant, in which you have three blind men, right? And they all touch an elephant and they describe what they're feeling. And one person says, I'm touching the trunk. It feels long and skinny like a snake. Another one, <clears throat> this one actually has a few more blind men, but um, this one says, hey, I've touched the, the legs and it's you know, fat and round like a tree trunk. Um, or they touch the tail and it's, it's skinny and um, kind of wirely, wirely like a rope, right? And so there's this argument that's out there <clears throat> about... Um, the way that religions attempt to describe truth or the way that religions try and claim superiority, and the argument goes alongside that each religion, right, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, we all touch a different part of the elephant, right? We all touch a different part of the bicycle, but no one can claim superiority, right? No one can say, no one religion can say, well, I know what everything is, right? Because they will say that, hey, you're only touching the tire, you're only touching the, um, <clears throat> the handlebars, right? Or another way to say it is no religion has the ultimate truth, right? No one religion can claim that they know, that they see, that they have ultimate truth, right? How many people, like, would agree with this? That this is a, hey, this is kind of a good argument. This seems, you know, logical that each religion touches a different part of the truth. Each religion just understands a different part of the truth. Anybody agree with that? What's the question again? If you would agree with either one of these statements. Is religion different than Christian faith in the God, ultimate God? Put Christianity in there, or Christianity is a religion, right? As a religion? Sure. Okay, would anybody agree with that this is kind of part of the problem that we see in religion in this world, right? That religion's claims, the claims of Judaism, the claims of Christianity, the claims of Islam, Buddha, right? What happens with these claims, these beliefs, is they lead to this feeling of superiority, of exclusivity, of separation, of divisiveness. Anybody agree with that? Right? Okay. So here's the thing. If you, maybe we agree with these statements or disagree with these statements or think about these statements, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to think about this. I would like you to think about maybe if I had to articulate or if I got in a conversation with somebody who used this, how perhaps would I dialogue against this metaphor or this parable or this image? So maybe turn to the person next to you. How would you dialogue against this? Brian, I think you know the answer to this, don't you? Yeah? Or a, an answer to this. Yes. <laughs> So turn to the person next to you, and if somebody came to you and said, hey, no religion can claim superiority, no religion has ultimate truth, and you wanted to dialogue or speak um, kind of against this, not in favor of this, how would you do that? What would you say? So you're defending that there isn't a religion that has all the answers? You are defending, the, you are against the claims, the black claims on there? How would you be against those black claims? 
claim superiority, you can claim this, but man reaches up to God for religion. And God reaches down to man for Jesus Christ. And and e- either that's true or not true. You know what I'm saying? That, um, all right, I think we're small enough this morning where I think we can maybe do this as one bigger group. Here's, here's a deal. And again, this, this kind of three blind men and the elephant is, is kind of a classic anti-pluralism argument or a classic pluralism argument, right? This kind of idea that, hey, no one religion has ultimate truth. No religion can claim superiority, right? But here's the classic understanding of this, this blind man and the elephant, right? Is that when somebody would make that statement, right? So somebody comes to you and they say, hey, there's three blind men, each, or the blind men, they each touch a different part of the elephant. That's what religion is. It ends up being a metaphor for religion, right? All the religions touch a different part of truth, but no one religion can claim ultimate truth. The problem with this parable, this metaphor, is that it's told from the perspective of one who sees. Does that make sense? Did I lose anybody on that? Can I say that again? You have the blind religions trying to figure out the elephant. And then you have the all-seeing, all-knowing perspective, right, of one who says, hey, all the religions only see part of it, but yet me and myself and my perspective is all-knowing. Does that make sense? Right? So this kind of classical idea, and this is, this is kind of some of the basis oftentimes of what we're going to talk about is religious pluralism, right? is the perspective that the one who sees and that the, all the others are blind and that this one person has the, the access to, to ultimate knowledge or to ultimate truth, right? So in saying that no religion has ultimate truth, what are they making a statement of? An ultimate, An ultimate truth, yeah. right? So this is kind of what it gets into. Now let me define pluralism because I know for a lot of you guys this is a new term and I want to define this. First off, there's this kind of idea of religious plurality, that religions coexist alongside one another. And I'm sure you've seen this beautiful bumper sticker on the back of a Chevy Cavalier. What is that, Brian? A, a mid? Is that, is that a late 90s? Huh? Something like that. Late 90s Chevy Cavalier? You can just tell by, by those. It also could be a Geo Metro. Maybe the, uh, um, <clears throat> oh no, it would be a Chevy. But, right, that religions coexist alongside one another. If you've got a Bible and you want to go to Acts 17, we'll look at a little narrative from, the book, from, from Mr. Paul. St. Paul. Paul, I'm sorry, I'll put it up here. I forgot to put it up here. Acts 17. We're just going to read two verses here on page 772. Paul travels to the city called Athens. Athens is in, in Greece, and here he's at the Areopagus. Um, he stands up in this meeting of this Areopagus right here, and here's actually the the um, the ruins of it from from you know from today. And he says, "People of Athens, I want to see that in every way you are very religious." Right? It's all these sorts of different religions claiming. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So Paul's kind of walking through this this temple with all these different gods and deities, and he finds one that it seems as if there's so many gods in Greece, there's so many gods in this place, they've just kind of given up on naming them, right? 
And the idea of religious plurality is that there is, ever since kind of the beginning of human history, maybe except back all the way into the garden, there's kind of always been that religions coexist alongside one another, right? We are Christians and our neighbors might be, um, you know, kind of non-religious, right? You might have a neighbor who is Jewish. You might know, we have family who's Jewish. You might have family who's Mormon, or you might know someone who's Islamic. But we have all these different religions coexisting in this space that we call planet Earth, right? We exist alongside one another. There's another example here, or there's another term that I want to talk about, and this is called religious pluralism, right? The philosophical or attitudinal, I think I made that word up, but this attitude or this disposition holding all religions to be equally true, equally correct, equally valid, right? So Gandhi says, all religions are true, I just want to love God, right? So this kind of idea that, hey, everything is true, right? This attitude that we all just experience a piece of the bicycle or a piece of the elephant, right? No one, again, going back to those original statements, no one can claim ultimate truth. No one can claim um, superiority. We all just have a piece of it, right? This philosophical, this disposition holding all religions to be equally true. Leslie Newbegin, who was a, he was a missionary in India, and this is back in the 30s. So Leslie Newbegin's from England. He goes on a missionary journey to India to go um, convert Indians, uh, the Indian people into Christians. He spends about 30 years of his life there, and then he goes back into England, into London, in, the, in like the mid-1960s, right? Kind of in the middle of that revolution. The Beatles are cranking out in the 60s. The sexual revolution is happening. So he, he leaves in the 30s in kind of, kind of a classical high church England, and then he comes back and he writes this book, it's called The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. Newbegin was talking about this kind of stuff back in the 60s and 70s and 80s as he was understanding it, right? So he talks about religious pluralism. It's one of the greatest books about pluralism. It's a, it's a deep read, but if you really wanted to go deep, I'd recommend it. And he says that religious pluralism is the belief that differences between religions are not a matter of truth or falsehood, but of different perspectives of the one truth, right? The elephant, the bicycle. That to speak of religious beliefs as true or false is inadmissible, right? Newbegin says, we can talk about religion in what you believe, right? You have your perspectives, but to talk about differences between religion, right? As either true or false, is it, you just can't talk, it's just not admissible. We can't talk in those terms, right? And again, this, is, this kind of idea is, is what I want to talk about, this attitude, this disposition, that everything's, all, where all the religions out there are true, right? All the religions are, are equally valid, right? Um, there was another book that I happened to pick up this, this week that I was studying, and it's um, by a guy named Tim Keller. Tim Keller has written a really phenomenal book on this. And he talks about a time when, himself, he's a, he's a minister in New York City, um, and then there was a rabbi, and there was an imam, right? A Muslim imam, kind of, you know, a Muslim pastor. They did a discussion panel together, the three of them, right? And they said they had this very courteous and kind exchange, and they were just talking about their different religions. And Keller writes this. He says in his book, he says, we all agreed on the statement, right? If Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is, 
However, if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, right? The Muslims would say that Jesus is a prophet. The Jews would say that he's a failed Messiah. Then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. He says the bottom line was we cannot all be equally right about the nature of God, right? And so when Keller talks about this, he, again, he's saying that, look, someone's either wrong or they're right, right? And they, again, Keller says we were in agreement. It was courteous. It was kind. But he says, this isn't like, hey, by the way, I believe this. It's like, hey, this is just kind of either one of us is wrong or the other one's right, but it's not just kind of holding up beliefs. Keller goes on to say that the reality is we all make truth claims of some sort and it is very hard to weigh them responsibly. But we have no alternative but to try and do so, right? So sometimes we retreat back into, well, I believe this, or if it's true for me, then it's good for me, or if it's true for you, then it's good for you. Keller is saying that we all are making these truth claims, and he says we need to do this responsibly. We need to weigh this and try and do this to it the best that we can do, but we don't have any alternative but to try and do this, right? So <clears throat> we get... Um, <clears throat> Let me see here. Now, I would say this, that this, when I read this and when I think about this with Keller, I think that this is, to me, this, I encounter this as very liberating news, right? And here's what I mean by that. It's okay to echo when Jesus in the book of John, Jesus says this, right? Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes next to the Father except through union with me. To know me is to know my Father, right? Listen, again, we are all making truth claims of some sort, right? Jesus did. He just said, I, he, Jesus claimed that he was the truth, right? You and I as Christians, we just point to Jesus and say that the truth is in him, right? But again, I encounter this as very liberating news because we are able to just kind of say, hey, we point to Jesus at, as the truth. Now, it might not be popular to say this. It might not be politically correct to say this. It might need some logical clarification to make this truth claim, but you and I, I feel, are, we can reasonably and coherently and logically make this claim, right? We don't need to, well, I, this, is, this is just true for me. This is, we kind of retreat in that, in that way, right? Go back to the bicycle or the elephant illustration, right? The one who says um, that the bicycle that it's a bicycle or that it's an elephant, right? There is one who's saying this is, this is what the truth is. They are simply making the truth claim, right? They are the one from the outside perspective saying, well, what ultimate truth is, is that all religions are just trying to grasp at reality, right? And if it's okay, literally, like that, that argument, that metaphor, if it's okay for them to do it, then I would say on this, the same flip side, I would say, well, maybe you're just touching a different part of the elephant, and I'm just going to feel com- far more comfortable in making my claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? We talked last week about secularism kind of having its moment of doubt, right? That we've kind of become this, this, this society where what we thought was true, what we thought was reasonable, ends up having its moment of doubt, and there's a great opportunity in here for the church to, to kind of stand up and rise up and claim the message of Jesus, Right? So the question, again, as Keller says, um, how do we do this? How do we weigh them responsibly? How do we make these statements? Um, I just, I just kind of want to push into this a little bit. I want to make our claims without being unloving, 
without being arrogant, without being obnoxious, right? And we need to acknowledge that sometimes as the church or as that as religions, we haven't done a good job on that, right? We haven't done a good job as far as saying, hey, this is, this is what truth is, right? Sometimes as we do that because of passion and because of zeal and because of the impact that Christ has had in our life, we end up going overboard and Christians can, can sometimes be obnoxious and arrogant and dogmatic about it, right? But what we want to do is we want to figure out how do we do this? How do we weigh this responsibly? How do we make our claims of truth in an appropriate manner? Does that make sense? I want, the first thing I want you guys all to know, that you're okay in making the claim of truth, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Even though it's not popular, even though it's not politically correct, it's okay that we do that. We don't, you know, again, we, we don't need to be like, oh, well, it's just my belief. It's just what I know. Okay? So here's a couple things to think about as we push into this. I would say that we need to foster a healthy respect for the other religions or the nuns, right? And the nuns by that, um, and I'll get into this quote in a second. Um, the nuns are the people who would identify as, as no religion or, or on surveys, this is how they got their name as you would um, do your religion. There was, you know, Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish, or you would identify yourself as, as none, right? And so there's this kind of growing segment of, of no religious preference, right? You foster a healthy respect for other religions or nuns. And here's one of the things, I forgot where I picked this up, but I was picking this up in my studies. If I'm wrong about Christianity or about Jesus, if really I'm wrong, if we're wrong about it, right? Paul says if we're wrong about it, then we're to be pitied and we're to be, you know, poor us, right? If we're wrong about it, how would I want to be treated by the person across from me from whom I'm dialoguing, Right? So say you're sitting down and you're dialoguing with a Jewish person and you're trying to explain how Jesus is the Messiah, how he lived out that reality. Say you're talking about with a Muslim person, you're saying Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He was actually the Savior. He was actually the one who is and was to come, right? But say you're wrong about it. How would you want that person to treat you in return, right? And you envision those types of conversations, you envision the interactions, you envision the body language, the questions, the retorts that you would like to be treated with. And then we, as we enter, again, if you have this opportunity, not, this opportunity is not going to come up for everybody, right? But as you enter into those conversations, um, you extend that outwards towards others, right? You extend that outward towards others, um, <clears throat> The second thing I would say is you foster a healthy respect for other religions and, and kind of the nuns is I would say avoid comparing the best parts of your religion with the worst parts of others, right? And we see this happen so often when religions get together and they want to talk about why their religion is the greatest and the other religion is terrible. And what they do is they, they compare the best parts of Christianity with the worst parts. So we would compare, you know, Mother Teresa with the ISIS terrorists, right? And, and, and we say, well, look how much better we are, right? And compared to that ISIS terrorist or, or Martin Luther King with, you know, um, sorry, I don't, I don't mean to, to, to kind of scapegoat the Muslims, but, you know, maybe Osama bin Laden, right? Well, look how much greater we are. So we avoid, as we foster this healthy respect for other religions, for nuns, we avoid comparing the best parts of our religion with the worst parts of others. Dallas Willard puts it like this. I think this is just a brilliant uh, piece of writing by Dallas. 
He says, in our culture, everyone acknowledges us, acknowledges that each of us ought to be a good, a loving, good person. Well, consider how Jesus was that and how he helps others be that, and then compare that honestly with the other religions. That is how we will see, not by trying to manipulate. That would mean looking at Hindus at their best and Christians at their best. If you look at Christians at their worst and Hindus at their worst, there's probably nothing to choose between. But looking them at their best, we ask, how does Christ make that difference? Then I think we have the basis for a good choice. Part of our approach must be to take the serious question of life, such as, what kind of person ought I to be? How can I become that kind of person? We should line up the responses to that from any religion or non-religion and put them next to those of Jesus Christ. Put them to the real test of life and take the one that's the best. Right? So as we think about these different religions and as you compare yourself and as you think about it, again, you compare the best to the best. What's best about Christianity to what's best about Hindus. And you say, that is what you want to look at. Don't do that like, hey, well, look how much more superior we are because of Martin Luther King and because of uh, Mother Teresa and because of these wonderful Christian people compared to the worst of others, right? We're the best tenets of our ethics versus theirs. Speaking of ethics, I would say that we should move, beyond, move conversations beyond morality and ethics, Okay? So sometimes people want to get together and they just kind of want to argue about which one's more moral, which one has the higher ethical standard. And you've got to move those conversations beyond that. Let me give you a couple statements and you can guess where they're from. Okay? This one, children, the old, the poor, etc. should be considered as lords of the atmosphere. Anybody want to guess where that's from? Muslim? It's a good guess. Anyone else? Gandhi? This one's a Hindu statement from one of the Hindu proverbs. Okay, here's another one. Love thy wife studiously, gladden her heart all thy life long. Anybody want to guess where that one's from? <laughs> no, I'm going a little bit more obscure on this one. This is, this is an ancient Egyptian proverb, right? Doesn't that kind of sound like a proverb, though, from the Bible? Right, like kind of, right? Yeah. Uh, never do to others what you would not like them do to you. That's Muslim? That's Confucius, right? What happens is, C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Abolition of Man. At the, at the end of the, his book, he has this long list of just kind of common ethics, morals between all the different religions, right? And he just says, we actually share quite a bit together, right? And he just says, again, you could almost kind of block out Hindu, ancient Egyptian, or Confucius and like, yeah, those sound, like, is that, is that in the book of Proverbs? Or is that like Old Testament? Or didn't Jesus say that, you know, to, to treat others as, and you can kind of say that a lot, of the, the, a lot of the morality, a lot of the ethics between the religions are the same. And then what Lewis notes about this, though, and this is what's different, right? This is why I would say to move conversations beyond morality and ethics, because for the most part, we share a, a lot of similarities. He says, where we differ is our source of power to live those out and the source of salvation, how we connect with God, right? So if, again, as you're entering into this conversation, as you're talking to people about this, you would then ask yourself, well, how do you live out that particular ethic? 
How do you engage that morality? From where do you make that claim? What is the good life? Remember we talked last week about secularism, we talked about utopia. Everybody is looking for that good life, for that utopia. What is that source, so to speak, of salvation for you? What is that end? And where is the source for that, right? Again, so often we just kind of get stuck in these conversations of morality, of ethics. We compare the morality, we compare the ethics. We say, well, your ethics say this and our ethics say this and all this, right? Where are the source of, the, of your power to live those out and the source of your salvation? Again, just another brilliant, brilliant passage by Dallas. Dallas says, so if someone asks my advice, it's always the same. Trust Jesus Christ. I wouldn't trust the Buddha for a bushel of oranges. Often when people talk about the Buddha, they don't realize that from a Buddhist point of view, the best thing that could happen to you would be for you to stop existing. The best thing. That's not much of a gospel. That's not much of good news. I always say if you've got someone who who honestly is better than Jesus, trust them. And if you don't, trust Jesus. And then this just brilliant little last line. By all means, don't trust yourself because you're the one who's got the problem, right? So Dallas just says, you know, again, as, as you look at this, um, if you got somebody better, if you have a better source, if you have a better salvation, then trust it, right? But he says, by all means, don't trust yourself because you're the one who's got the problem. Now, last thing I want to talk about. <clears throat> I want us to understand the nature of tolerance. I want to talk about tolerance for a second kind of a buzzword in in today's culture, right? So tolerance. So this might be something that you've seen um, in in internet meme land. Tolerance has become this buzzword. Um, It's fuzzy. We have all these kind of little Instagram or, or, again, memes about it. And kind of the idea behind tolerance is that we're all the same, right? The idea, what tolerance would say is that, hey, we're all the same at the end of the day, whether you're black, white, gay, straight, religious, atheist, you, I guess you're in your whole separate category right there, whoever you are. At the end of the day, we all are just skeletons on the inside, right? And it looks really to the kind of purely physical nature of, of who we are, right? We're all just flesh and bones. We're all just whatever, right? Here's one, too. If, if the skeletons, if it's a little too Halloweeny and you want something a little bit more warm and fuzzy, Mark, that's for you because you have dogs and cats and tolerance. Try it. It makes you feel fluffy inside, right? But again, this word tolerance is this meme, this kind of buzzword, right? It it just kind of it just kind of is means hey, we're all the same, right? It doesn't matter your opinion. It doesn't matter your ideology. It doesn't matter your religion. It doesn't matter your sexual preference. At the end of the day, we're just dogs and cats trying to get together. We're all just skeletons. That's what tolerance. The kind of popular understanding, I would say the street-level understanding of tolerance is, right? Now, what is tolerance? Tolerance isn't just saying that everybody's the same. Tolerance, I would say, is how do we treat others after we learn they are different from us, right? How do you engage somebody when you find out that they are different than you? Um... And I would say that this is where Christianity's core, te- one of Christianity's core teachings, one of our tenets, is absolutely unique. Uh, it's the message of Christ in this world. And so let's look at one other passage too. This is a very famous passage, but Luke 10, 25 through 29. It's on page 725. That doesn't sound right, does it? Weren't we just on 722 for Acts? Or is that 822? 
Oh, 7.72. Okay, so 7.25, loop 10. You probably guys have all this memorized, so. Good old parable of the what? Good the Good Samaritan. <clears throat> On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? We're all familiar with this. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, uh, who is my neighbor, right? How do I love that person who is different than me? And then we know <clears throat> the, the, the parable that Jesus te teaches him, right? Where this, this Samaritan, where this outsider, where this, where this enemy comes along and the enemy becomes the hero of the story. And Jesus says, I want you to act like the Samaritan. Right? That's who I want you to act like. Right? So what I would say about Christianity, what I would say that is so unique as we think about tolerance, again, tolerance not being, hey, we're all just a bag of skeletons, we're all just bones, we're all just flesh and blood, we're all just the same. It doesn't matter who you are, we're all, it's just one love, right? That's just, again, that's Instagram, that's meme, that's pop theology that is, has no basis in rational thought, right? Um, What's unique to Jesus, what was a hallmark of the early church, was the ability for Jesus' followers to love and bless those outside of our particular circle. You need to read the New Testament and think about the massive movement that the early church went through when they began incorporating Gentiles into the Jesus, the Jewish Jesus movement, right? When they said, and, and, and the struggle for Peter, Right? And the struggle for John and the struggle for all and the, and the tension as they said, okay, listen, the calling of Christ is to move outside and to love and to bless those outside of our circle. Right, And the source and the strength of our calling for our faith in Jesus, this is where we get it from Jesus, is we look at those who are different from us, who are outside of our religious circle, who are outside of our political ideology who are outside of our gender preferences. And we ask ourselves, how can I love them? How can I bless them through goodness, through kindness, through help, through healing, through sacrifice, through care, through concern? The church is an organization which is set up to bless and to love those outside of its gates, right? And again, we often just kind of sit here and we, say, we just nod our heads and say, hey, yeah, Jesus, Jesus loves me, right? We exist to be a blessing to those outside of, our, of the church walls. Too many churches have reversed that and don't think clearly about that. So as we talk about tolerance, tolerance isn't the same. It's about loving those and caring for those um, around us. This is the strength. This is the calling of faith uh, in Jesus Christ. All right? Religious pluralism. I'm going to give you one last takeaway. Let's go back to the elephant. One last takeaway. I just like that elephant um, picture, whoever made that, made that up. Uh, <clears throat> what happens with religious pluralism, and I don't know if this question's lurking in the back of your mind as well too, what happens with religious pluralism is as we say, 
Um, as all these religions kind of say, hey, well, this is my way to God, and I have the truth, and I have the truth, right? And we Christians say, no, we have the truth, right? And we often ask, and I'm sure other religions are asking the same thing. They're asking, well, what about heaven, right? What about eternity? What about eternal life? What about salvation? What do, do the Muslims do? They get to go to heaven, right? Do the Jews, even though they don't believe in Jesus, do they get to go to heaven? What about, again, the classic, what about the person in Africa who's never heard Jesus, right? What about all those people, right? And we always kind of have that question lurking behind our mind in a lot of these different conversations. <clears throat> um, I was reading a commentary this, this week, and it's, it's far and away the best commentary I've ever read. And this commentator, at one point he was in college, and he's recalling this college narrative in which he kind of asks his professor this question, right? And he says to his professor, he says, <clears throat> he says, again, what about those who never heard of the gospel, about Jesus, about Christianity? And his professor, who was, you know, this kind of this wise elderly lady, she replied with simply one verse. And she goes, oh, wrong way. That's how she said. She said, shall not the judge of all the earth do rightly? Isn't that a great, isn't that a great verse? You know, again, when people get caught up, well, what about this person going to heaven? What about this person going to heaven? What about that person? And this lady just said, shall not the judge of the, all the earth do rightly? Right? It's not for us to judge. It's not for us to make those comments and to send, do this, right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do rightly? Bruner then continues on. He says, God is not bound by Christians. God can save whomever God wants. Then he flips it and he says, but Christians are bound by God and God's word, which means we know and preach only Jesus Christ as God's salvation. Okay. I think that's about enough for the morning. Um, I'd like to jump into a few questions this morning because I, I think this is kind of one of those topics that hopefully will bring up more questions and answers. And obviously, there's a lot to unpack in this idea of religious pluralism. Um, and I, again, I felt like I gave one teaching that could have been 100. A couple questions. What other dialogue points in the elephant bicycle illustration can you think of? How, comfor how comfortable hmm, are you in stating religious, religion as facts, truth, or reality, or maybe Christianity as facts, truth, or reality? Why do you think religions can often come across as disrespectful towards others? Question mark. Um, how would you share about our source of salvation and the power to live in this world, right? As Lewis says, instead of ethics and morality, what about our source of salvation? What about our source of power? Where do you see Christians still living out the great commandment um, to love their neighbors, specifically kind of those on the opposite side of the fence. Okay, so take a few minutes on those and then we'll have some group discussion as always. If there's something else in there that you want to discuss, we'll jump on that too.